0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate Scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. Hey, are you scared to stand before God in judgment? Lots of people are, but we're going to see today from Genesis 1.10— that you have nothing to fear from the judgment of God. You'll see that this from how God names the earth and the seas. And you'll also see that no matter what God does, He always and only has your good in mind. That's what we're going to see from Genesis 1.10. Stick around and watch the show. Hey, before we do that, I do want to emphasize once again that if you don't have Logos Bible software and you're thinking of getting a package, one of their starter packages, uh, you can use my coupon code JMyers6 and get 15% off your purchase. I also want to read a note from iTunes. Joel left a review. He says, I've been following Jeremy's blog for a year or two now and was pleased to hear the podcast. It doesn't disappoint. Jeremy doesn't run headlong into tradition, but spends time researching and bringing a balanced view of Scripture. Hey, Joel, thanks for leaving that review. I really, really appreciate it. Hey, and you know, if you've been listening to the One Verse Podcast for a while, and you've been enjoying what you've been hearing, could I ask you to share the podcast with some of your friends or family members? You know, put up a post on Twitter, send out some Some uh, Facebook updates, or if you got a blog, that would be even better. Put up a a post about your blog and and tell people to head over to iTunes and subscribe. And by the way, if you don't use iTunes, you can also subscribe on Stitcher. If you have an Android device, you can do that also. You can learn more about that by going to redeeminggod.com, subscribe to podcast. And there's uh, instructions there and links there for you to subscribe on Stitcher or... Android or one of some other podcast software app, whatever it is you use. Anyway, if you share that with your uh, blog uh, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, you know one of your other social sites, I would really really appreciate it uh, and, and it would mean a lot to me if you mention it, mention me in the post or the tweet Twitter I'll respond I'll come uh, leave a comment and, and be thanking you as well. I really appreciate it. We have an awful lot to cover today so with all of that in mind, let's jump right into the text of Genesis 110. Okay, so Genesis one ten is continuing to look at the third day of the Genesis creation epic. And on this day, God creates, or forms, I should say, the dry land and the seas. We saw that last time. He, he pushes back the waters to let the dry land appear. And from this activity of forming the waters, and the seas. We're going to learn three surprising and encouraging truths. We're going to, we're going to learn what it means for God to judge. Uh, we're going to learn why the names that God gives the dry land and the waters below are theologically significant. And we'll also learn why everything that God does in your life is only and always for your good. Uh, we're going to get all that from Genesis 1:10. Here's what the verse says. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So we're in this third day of creation, and in Genesis 1-9, the last show, we saw that God gathered the waters together, the waters below together, so that the dry land could appear. Now, in Genesis one ten, God names the waters and names the seas. And then at the end, he sees that they are good. So uh, we, we, we have, we've looked at these activities before, the naming activity of God and seeing activity of God, seeing that they were good. But I, w- I really want to focus in on these in this episode so that uh, you and I can see some encouraging truths about these activities of God. So the first thing God does is uh, he names the things that he formed. Um, much as in the preceding days, uh, uh, he names what he created. Uh, he, in, in the first day, he named the light day, and he named the darkness night. That was Genesis 1-5. We talked about that a little bit. And then in the second day, he named the firmament heaven. Here in Genesis one he names the dry land earth, and the waters below he named Seas. I really like how the Bible opens with this naming activity of God, uh, because naming is one of the seven key activities of God that we find in Scripture. And, uh, those seven. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about those seven in the next episode when we look at verses eleven through thirteen. But usually, when we think about the activities of God, we, we sort of have this in, in mind that God is generally out for good, uh, to bless us and help us and provide for us and protect us. But typically, there's one activity of God in the Bible, in Scripture, that a lot of us feel a little nervous about, a little scared about, and that is the judging activity of God. Uh, usually, when we think about the judgments of God, we sort sort of have an idea this time when we're standing, quaking in our boots before God, and He's sitting up there on the throne, and we're down below, and He's he's parading all of our sins and failures and mistakes before us, you know, on this big screen or something for everybody to watch. It's shaming us. And, 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 you know, that's one sort of judgment. Other, other times, we think of the judgments of God sort of like the ones we read about in the Bible, where he he apparently sends this flood to destroy and kill and drown mur- uh, millions, maybe billions of people, or some of the judgments of God, where he sends fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, or the ten plagues upon Egypt. We think of... Um, God opening up the earth to swallow these people who were challenging Moses' leadership. We think of God sending sickness and famine and war and pestilence and disease— of course, even when we get to the end of the Bible, into end times events and Revelation and so on, we think of these judgments of God, where the bulls and the trumpets and the scrolls and all that, where God is, you know, darkening the scar the stars and he's sending um, this comet down, this, this asteroid or whatever, to, to poison the waters of the earth, and he's sending sto- uh, storms, and finally, of course, one of these last judgments, he's condemning all these people to eternity in hell, and so so a lot of us, for very good reason because of all this stuff in the Bible about the judgments of God, we get a little nervous about facing God in judgment. Um, Obviously, I don't have time to give you a framework to understand all of those judgments of God, especially in light of Jesus Christ and His crucifixion. But I do want to introduce you to the very first sort of building block or foundational stone for how to understand the judgments of God. And you may not realize it, but so far in Genesis chapter 1— here's the the foundation stone, the building block. Uh, So far in Genesis 1, we've seen the judgments of God three times. Did you notice them? Have you seen them? Probably not. We saw it in verse 5, we saw it in verse 8, and we're seeing it again here in verse 10. This is the third time. What am I referring to? I'm speaking about the naming activity of God. To name something, the way it's used in Scripture and the way it's used here in Genesis 1, is to see it as it really is, to to, to, to speak the truth about what it is. Uh, when God names something, he's, he's making a judgment about it. He's making a decision. Um, he's seeing what it is, and then He's speaking the truth about it. So uh, that's how we can think about the judgments of God. When we think about the judgments of God, uh, we really should be thinking about the naming of God. In fact, that will really help you understand more of the judgments of God, if, if you think of it about primarily as the naming of God, a naming activity of God, the, the two concepts. They're not the same words in the Bible, naming and judging, but they're, the concepts are very closely related. Uh, when, when God judges something, He names it for what it is. Now, I didn't come up with this idea, I got it from C.S. Lewis, probably by far my favorite author, and so I've I've read, as far as I know, pretty much everything he's written, except for, I guess, a lot of his letters, but everything else. Anyway, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he has an excellent chapter. If you can get a copy of that book, go read it, a chapter on the judgments of God. And in it, uh, he says that the judgments of God really are uh, when God sees something for what it is, and he names it. He calls it by its right name. He calls it out by name. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis, notices sort of the same thing I just mentioned to you, that modern people are afraid of judgments because of the way judgments work in our culture in Western society. Uh, typically, the way a judgment works is a person is called into court to answer for a crime that they have been accused of. And so they go to court, sort of scared and nervous, wondering if they're going to be accused, wondering if they're going to be found guilty. They're hoping for mercy, of course, hoping that the judge pronounces them not guilty. But even still, they're put on on trial, they have to you know, answer and, and difficult questions and with all the lawyers and everything, you just never really know how the judgments are going to turn out, whether you're going to be found guilty or innocent. So we hope and we pray and we cry out to God. Okay. And so so that's sort of how how we because of the way judgments and the court systems are set up in our society, that's sort of how we view the judgments of God as well. Like we are going to be standing trial to answer for our crimes before the judge of the universe, before God. But Lewis points out in his excellent little chapter there on the judgments of God, that this is not the way judgments happened in Bible times. Uh, The courts and judges operated differently back then. Back then, people typically were not called to court to answer for their crimes. No, it's just the opposite, actually. People went to court to get an injustice overturned. Something that had bad that had happened to them, then they would go to court to see if the judge would uh, pronounce or overturn the judgment, overturn the injustice in their favor. So when they're cheated or, or when someone's trying to steal their land or their house, a person would go to the court to get the judge to make a judgment in their favor. So people liked going to court because they were hoping to have injustice overturned. You can see this uh, in Luke 18. Jesus tells a parable about a widow who goes to an unjust judge. Judges weren't always just then, just as they're not always now, and uh, just how this widow gets this unjust judge to rule in her favor. She wants to go to court, even though this judge is corrupt, to get him to rule in her favor. Uh, She's seeking justice against the person who is mistreating her. As far as we know, the guy who's mistreating her, he never even has to show up in court. So so that's the point uh, that Lewis is, is making. Modern people fear and dread judgment, but people in Bible times looked forward to judgment because they think they have been wronged and they are hoping to see their wrongs righted. That's what Lewis writes. So... They want the judge to set things right. They want to go to court and receive judgment, because um, to receive a judgment in a biblical court is to receive justice, to to right a wrong that has been done to you. And I'm convinced, as we read through the Bible, that this is how God judges. I would invite you, think of God's judgments, not so much as God pointing out to you what you have done wrong, but rather as God pointing out to you the ways you have been wronged. Think of the judgments of God as God taking your side, as God standing on the witness stand in your favor, as God as your lawyer and as Satan as the accuser. God is on your side. He is your lawyer, in a sense. He is standing up for you. He is speaking truth to the lies and the injustice that have been said about you. He is defending the downtrodden. Okay? That's the judgments of God that we read about in the Bible, okay? and that's really the way the judgments of God are in Scripture, especially for those who are his people. Okay, and so that is how we can understand the naming activity of God. We're just getting a real basic introduction to this here in Genesis one, uh, but I think that that sort of foundational building block there will help you understand some of the other judgments of God throughout Scripture, and also what you and I can expect when we stand before the you know the judgment seat of Christ or whatever. Uh, uh, at, at the return of Jesus, so I'm talking about this here, though, because uh, Genesis 1:10 is uh, the last time God officially names something, or we could think judges something in the Genesis account, and uh, we'll see why when we get to Genesis 2:19, where God passes this naming activity on to Adam. Uh, and by the way, that helps us understand what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he tells us that we are to be judging one another because we're going to judge the angels and judge the whole world. Does that mean we're going to call down fire and brimstone on the angels and call down destruction on the earth? No. It <laughs> means we're going to set things right. We're going to name things as they really are. Okay, we're going to make proper judgments. Anyway, we'll talk about all that when we get there. So, uh, the naming activity of God in Genesis 1.10. Uh, basically, I want you to see that um, here in Genesis 1.10, uh, God named the dry ground and the waters below. Uh, it says uh, he named the dry ground earth and the waters he called seas. Now, you know, initially this sort of seems rather unimportant. Well, who cares what he named him? That's what we call him. Let's move on. There's nothing here. But uh, really, Moses is making another theological jab at the Egyptian and Canaanite religions by this statement here in 110. Uh, You may recall from previous shows, we talked about how the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Sumerians and pretty much everybody else at that time uh, believed that the various gods they worshipped were sort of tied to and dependent upon uh, the various functions or various parts of the created world. Uh, you know, sometimes, um, so like so like when waters were created, uh, the god of the waters sort of sprang into existence along with the waters. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes that's the way it worked. And so uh, it was typically that you couldn't have the god without the waters, and you couldn't have the waters without the god— and uh, the water was tied to the god, so you'd have the water god, and the sun god, and the earth god, and the air god, and things like that. Uh, and now, occasionally what happened, especially sometimes in the Canaanite uh, uh, group, is that uh, the, the god that was tied to a particular part of creation, the name for that part of creation and the name of the god were the same. Uh, the, the name of the god was also the name of the item with which the god was associated. So, what we find here in Genesis 1.10, and by the way, we're going to see this also in one sixteen. You can sort of look up there and see ahead where we're headed. Uh, Moses avoids using the names of those deities and instead shows God naming the things he created with words that are not the words associated with that particular deity. I mean, let, let me explain. In fact, let me let me to explain this. Let me use a modern example first, and then we'll go back and look at Genesis one ten to see how this applies. Let's take the word Jupiter. All right, when I say the word Jupiter, you probably think of the fifth planet in our solar system, which also is the largest planet in our solar system. Uh, but if you're a little familiar with Roman mythology, you might also know that Jupiter is the name for the supreme god of the Roman pantheon. He's the, the king of the gods. And the reason the ancient Romans named Jupiter Jupiter is because they saw that Jupiter was the largest star in the sky. And so they figured, well, that must be the star of Jupiter, uh, of their god. Um, and and, and similar, by the, similar goes for Saturn and Mars and Neptune and so on. All right, All of these are Roman deities. So anyway, let's say that I time-traveled, and I went back to ancient Rome, and I wanted to talk to a guy back there who worshipped the god Jupiter, but I wanted to talk to him not about the god Jupiter, but I wanted to talk to him about the planet Jupiter, all right? Uh, And and I knew he worshipped the god Jupiter, but what I wanted to tell him is that the god Jupiter... um, Well, it doesn't exist, Uh, that the planet Jupiter had nothing whatsoever to do with the Roman god Jupiter. Instead, the planet was created and controlled by the power of Yahweh. Now, even as I'm talking to you, and you and I know what I'm talking about, it gets confusing, doesn't it? Because am I talking about the planet Jupiter? Am I talking about the god Jupiter? What's going on? Well, so what I could do to differentiate the two is, uh, when I'm referring to the planet, don't use the word Jupiter, but instead I could call it the fifth planet from the sun. All right, and so I could say the fifth planet from the sun was created by Yahweh and set into orbit. Of course, back then, I'm not sure they really knew that the star, that largest light in the sky, was a planet. I'm not, I honestly don't know what they thought it was, so, and I, they definitely didn't believe that whatever it was, it revolved around the sun. They thought it revolved around the earth. Okay, so anyway, it gets all confusing, but, but you understand the point. If I wanted to tell him that that light in the sky was created by Yahweh, I, I, I'm not going to call it by its name Jupiter, because that would sort of be giving credit and glory to the God that he worshipped, and that is exactly the opposite of what I want to do. Instead, I want to give credit and glory to Yahweh. So, I would find a way to refer to that light in the sky by something other than the Roman god Jupiter. All right, maybe I would call it the brightest light in the sky or something like that. Let let me give you one more example. You know, the days of the week. Lots of people do not realize this, but the seven days of the week Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday are named after pagan deities. Did you know that? Sunday, obviously named after the sun, Mondays named after the moon, Tuesday is named after Tyr. T-Y-R, it's it's a Germanic sky god. Wednesday, if you ever wondered why it's spelled so weird, it's named after Woden, W-O-D-E-N, Woden. It's also Odin. He's an Anglo-Saxon deity. He's the chief Anglo-Saxon deity. By the way, it's interesting, Odin hung on a tree before coming back to life. Study that, interesting. Anyway, Thursday, Thor's Day. We all know who Thor is, or you probably do anyway. Friday is named after Frey. He's one of the most important gods of the Norse religion. And then there's Saturday, which is named after Saturn. It's the Roman god of agriculture and time. So again, uh, uh, people were named these because like, this is the day you worship the sun. This is the day you worship the moon. This is the day you worship tier, so on. All right. So if I wanted to make a point though to someone who worshipped one or another of these pagan deities, that look on the sun on Sunday, I don't worship the sun. I worship the God of all time, Yahweh. And on Monday, I don't worship the moon. I worship the God of all time, Yahweh. And on Tuesday, I don't worship Tyr, all right? I worship the God of all time, Yahweh. What I might do is stop referring to these days of the week by their popular name, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I might start saying, on the first day of the week, I worship Yahweh, or Jesus, in our case. Uh, On the second day of the week... I worship you know, so, uh, Yahweh or Jesus. So, so uh, what I'm doing, see, is by refusing to call these names these days of the week with their popular names, I'm sort of drawing attention to the fact that this day isn't the sun's day. This is Yahweh's day. This is the, the day of Jesus. Uh, this day, the second day of the week, is not the moon's day. This is the go- This is the day for the God who created the moon. Right? So so that might be sort of how I'm drawing attention to this, that these other gods, they don't exist, they're not important, they're not to be honored. These are days to honor and worship and glorify God with every minute of every day, the one true God. All right? That's where I'm going, and that's what Moses is doing in Genesis 110. He goes out of his way to avoid using the common name for the sea. Um, instead, he uses sort of a, a weird word instead— the common word for the sea in Hebrew is yom. But Moses uses a different version of the word. He uses the word yamim. All right, it's an intensive version of the word. It's a uh, plural. And uh, in your Bibles it's translated seas. All right, now, now, why does he do that? It's not normal. It's not natural. Why does Moses use a slightly different version of the word for sea? There's lots of theories why. In fact, one of the most creative I found in a Jewish commentary by Rashi, one of the most famous Jewish commentators, and he says that the reason God uses the plural for seas is not because there are multiple seas. He says, for everybody knows they're all connected. There's only one. He says, the reason God uses the plural for seas is because different fish from different parts of the ocean taste different. (laughs) Uh, Very, very creative, Rashi. I don't think that's it, though. Look, my belief, and this is what I found in most uh, commentaries which I read in articles on the subject, is that uh, since Genesis 1 is a theological polemic against the Egyptian and Canaanite and Mesopotamian and Babylonian religions, Moses changes the word from Yom to Yamim. Why? Because one of the chief Canaanite deities' name is Yom, all right? Uh, the Canaanite deity, Yom, was a sea monster, lived in the sea, controlled the sea. It was a, a goddess of, or god of uh, chaos. It's connected to the sea, all right, so so just like maybe if I'm talking to an ancient Roman guy about the fifth planet from the sun, I might not refer to Jupiter and refer to the fifth planet of the sun. Or if I'm talking to a, a guy, a pagan who worships Odin, I might not refer to the fourth day, let's see, third day, Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, fourth day of the week as Wednesday, Odin's Day, I might refer to it instead as the fourth day of the week, okay? That is what Moses is doing. Rather than referring to this great body of water as yom, he refers to it instead as yamim, to make this theological point. Think of what if—here he is, he's talking to the Israelites. If he had said, and on the third day, God uh, uh, pulled back, pulled the waters together, uh, uh, pushed the waters together, and then he named them yom. Listen to what he's saying to the Israelite people. He's basically saying, oh, and by the way, on this third day, God created Yom, the Canaanite sea monster. That's what they would have heard him saying. And Moses did not want them to hear him say that. He didn't want them, didn't want to give credit, glory, honor in any way to Yom. In fact, he wanted to indicate to the Hebrew people that Yom, this Canaanite sea monster, did not even exist and has no power in God's world. In fact, is not even a God at all. In these creation myths of these other religions, uh, when the gods made the seas and the earth, the gods of the seas and the earth sprang into existence. I said that. Um, But when God gathers the waters below and names them Yamim, no other god is formed. It's just water, and there's still just one God. So the theological point here in naming of the seas is that God alone is sovereign. God alone is God. That's what Moses is pointing out by showing how God named the seas. But what about the word earth? Uh, does the same thing apply there? Uh, it says, Genesis one ten says that God named the dry ground earth. Uh, the Hebrew word there is Eretz, E-R-E-T-Z. Uh, of course, that's English spelling, but whatever. So the point is, the question is, does does, god, does, does does God change the word here? Does Moses change the word here so that he doesn't name the earth god? The answer is no. Uh, there weren't any gods in Egypt or Canaan that shared their name with the word for earth. Uh, in Egypt, for example, the god of earth is Geb and uh, G-E-B. I talked about him in a previous episode, and uh, he's the god of the earth. But the earth itself was not ever called Geb. Sometimes it was called the House of Geb, but it wasn't referred to as Geb itself. So what Moses is doing here is, as far as the earth goes, is he simply uses the normal word for earth. Um, although, let me say this, it would be better, in my opinion, to be if it was translated as land. And here's why. Uh, There's special emphasis in Genesis 1, uh, well, actually, in in Genesis, well, not just in Genesis, in the entire Pentateuch, um, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, on the land. Land is one of the major themes in the Mosaic writings. Uh, Let's just look at at Genesis 1 as an example. Uh, Moses emphasizes the land, Eretz, in Genesis 1 by how many times it's mentioned. So, Genesis, uh, the the creation account, as you know, spans seven days, and in Hebrew thinking, the number seven is the number of perfection. So, in his creation account, Moses emphasizes the number seven quite a bit. For example, uh, Genesis 1.1, the first verse, is seven words long in the Hebrew. Contains seven Hebrew words. The second verse contains 14 words, which is a multiple. Second verse, seven times two, 14. Uh, That doesn't carry on into the third verse, of course. But uh, other there are other seven patterns in Genesis 1. For example, the name of God, Elohim. I've been referring to him as Yahweh. That's probably incorrect, because we haven't found out his name yet in Genesis. We'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, Yahweh is his name, so that's what I'm going to continue to use. Anyway, he's referred to as Elohim in Genesis 1. And he, uh, Elohim is mentioned 35 times. Seven times five is 35. Uh, anyway... Um, what we read in Genesis 1-1 is God created the heavens and the earth, and that word earth there is eretz, land. Heavens and earth are both mentioned 21 times in, in Genesis, in the opening chapters here of Genesis, uh, which of course is a multiple of seven. Seven times three is 21. So that's one way that Moses is emphasizing the earth, the eretz, and um, he's given special emphasis to this. Now why is that? Well, uh, the land becomes a special focus, uh, has special focus uh, elsewhere in Genesis. In fact, even here on day three, if you notice, we're going to look at this next time, there's actually two, sort of two creative acts in the third day of creation. Uh, Usually, after day one and day two, we'd be about done right now, but if you look in verses 11 through 13, there's another creative act on the land in day three. It's when he creates the plants and the trees and so on. And so it's sort of uh, showing this special emphasis on the land here. In another way, not just with the number seven, but also with this special emphasis, this two creative acts when it comes to the land. And uh, so why this emphasis on the land? Well, um, Sailhammer, John Sailhammer, in his book, Creation Unbound, he believes that this emphasis on the land... Is sort of the key which unlocks the creation account. He's saying he says that since the Hebrew people were preparing to enter into the promised land, that's sort of the key to helping us unlock the special emphasis on land in Genesis one. So, so that's why land is is so much emphasized here. The emphasis is not so much, Sailhammer says, on creating. The universe as a whole, but creating the promised land for the people of Israel. And he says that sort of helps explain uh, the entire creation account. Anyway, it's a unique idea, and I don't fully agree with what Sailhammer says. Uh, I do think there's a special emphasis on land, but I think that it is not just referring to the promised land. Uh, I do think that it does refer to the promised land, but I don't think the entire creation account is only about the promised land. Let's put it that way. So by naming the dry ground land, though, Moses, he's not taking a jab at the pagan deities the way he did with Yamim. But instead, what he's doing is he is introducing to the Hebrew people the important theme of the promised land and how God is preparing it for them. Uh, It is definitely, Sailhammer's right, this is definitely a theme. I just don't think it is the only theme or primary theme. All right, so uh, what have we seen so far in Genesis 1:10? 10 uh, g- Naming, God's naming activity, judgments. And what is he naming? He's naming the, s- the seas, uh, Yamim. He's naming the dry l- ground, land, Eretz. All right, and-, and by naming them, he's saying what they really are. The seas are not a sea monster of chaos and destruction. Okay, they're under, they're- they're under the control of God. And the land is this good thing of God that he is preparing for his people, Israel. And that leads us to the end of Genesis one ten, where God saw. He saw the land, and he saw the seas, and he said it was good. He saw that it was good. This is that seeing activity of God, another activity, one of the seven activities of God. Uh, we talked about it briefly back in Genesis 1.4. And uh, basically what we saw there, and we're seeing all the way throughout, is that when God uh, sees something is good, it is good for man. Not everything in this creation account is—he doesn't say—he doesn't see that it's good all the time. It's only when it's good for humanity that the text says it is good, all right? So, um, again, lots of times at at that time when people thought of the seas, they thought of this place of chaos and death and destruction. They feared the seas— But here, God says, no, even the seas are good because they are for humans. They're for your pleasure. They're for your enjoyment. They are to serve your needs. That's why they are good. The seas are good. Uh, And this is important because in so many of the creation myths at that time, the, the, the purpose of creation was to serve and benefit the gods, not mankind. Uh, even even mankind, uh, in those other creation myths, when they're created, they are created to feed the gods and serve the gods and worship the gods. But, but in, in Moses, in this creation account, it's reversed. Everything God makes is not for himself, but for you and for me. It's for humanity. The things God creates are good, not because they're pleasing to God or good for God, but because they are good and beneficial for us, for you and for me. It's a completely different perspective that Moses is presenting to the people here. And it's reminding us too, by the way, that just as God created everything for us, everything we are to do is, should be to serve others, to help others, to do good to others, be generous to others. Just as God made everything for us, what we do could be for other people as well. So that's Genesis 1.10, and um, we've seen three points. Let me just summarize them again. First, God's naming or judging activity. Uh, don't think of God's naming or judging as a bad or scary thing, but as, as God standing up for what is right. When God judges, he's, he's speaking the truth. And, and you and I want that, right? We want the truth to be spoken about us. We don't like lies spread about us. So, so uh, don't be afraid of God's judgments for you. When you, you know, quote-unquote, stand before God in judgments, you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, I love you. You are forgiven. I am proud of you. That's what he's going to say, that he infinitely loves you. He's He's going to encourage you. He's going to say only the best things about you because he's proud of you. That will be the judgment of God for you and for me. It's a naming activity, speaking the truth about us. And that is what is true. The second thing we saw from Genesis 1.10 is that God doesn't give any credit to false gods in his creation. He doesn't give any credit to yom. In the naming activity, he names what is true. uh, And uh, he, he names the seas yamim rather than yom, saying that there is no yom. There is no Canaanite god of the sea. And then he names the dry ground earth, saying, I've prepared this for you. It is good. This promised land I'm taking you to is for your good. And, you know, you and I, we probably don't believe in Yom, some of these false gods of, the, of Egypt and Canaan or Mesopotamia, anything like that. But we do fear other things. We fear things in life. We, we fear sin and temptation, the worry of what will happen tomorrow, the difficulties of life, problems with marriage and family and jobs and finances. I would invite you, let God speak truth to you in these areas also. Listen to God tell you that sin has no power over you because he loves you. Let him show you that the lure of temptation, it can't compare to the lure of his love. Let him remind you that he has tomorrow all figured out. You don't need to worry about it. Let him teach you that as much as you want a good marriage, he wants a good marriage for you even more, a good family, a good job. God wants those things for you more than you want them for yourself. And if you let him, he will lead you, he will guide you, he will protect you, and he will provide for you in all these ways. Hebrew people were afraid of Yom and the Egyptian deities. We're afraid of other things. But God says to us, don't worry about those things. I've got your back. I'm with you. And Why does God do all this? Because God only seeks our good. That's the third truth from Genesis 1.10. Everything that is done in creation is for the good of mankind. This is the way God worked in the beginning, and it's the way God still works today. He is always and only looking out for your good. So today, whatever is gnawing at your mind or has your stomach tied up in knots, listen, just, just remember that God knows the truth of what is going on, and nothing, nothing can stop him from working all things together for the good. That's the end of Genesis 1:10. We're still not done with day 3 though. God has the second creative act on day 3. We'll look at that next time when we consider Genesis chapter 1 verses 11 through 13. See you then.